Lisa and I have been moving. We sold our house, and we're building a house up the road a little ways, and everything hurts. <laughs> Just, I'm complaining. I don't need, mean to do that, but <laughs> Eric thinks it's funny. Ha ha. <laughs> Actually, he and Lori came over, and you should be hurting too, because they helped quite a lot, but thanks for that. So, okay, today's the eighth Proverbs 8. I chose verse 22. The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his way, before his works of old. Hmm. My question to you is this rhetorical one. Who's me? Think that through. Read that, read that passage sometime. Figure out what it is, who, who it is that the Lord possessed at the beginning of his way. Okay. So if we've been in a series. We just started a series. We um, um, took a week off last week, and we've been talking about heaven and the afterlife. And so that's where we are. We're, we're going to continue in that series. If you want to know about life, there are plenty of people who will sell you a magazine all about life, and they're right there at the checkout counter at the grocery store. Um, one of my favorites, and it's not published anymore, was a magazine called Life Magazine. Many of you will remember Life Magazine. It was big, tall, and had lots of pictures. And um, it wasn't so much hard news. It had some hard news in it, but um, it, was, uh, it was a magazine that was actually started around the 18, late 1800s, like 1883, and then it was on again and off again, on, on and off until the early 2000s. And I think it was purchased or bought out at some point in that time by Time Magazine. So you see Time Life ads on TV all the time for you know the Johnny Cash or whatever you know the Dean Martin roast whatever this Time Life things. But Life Magazine came out, and uh, you probably remember it. It gave us these little snippets and insights into life all around the world. And uh, so um, just all kinds of different things you'll recognize and lots of photos and, and news and hobbies and you know just articles about people. There's a lot of different things. And um, you, you can find old Life magazines um, in antique stores. They're four or five dollars and um, you'll see them. And there we go, okay. Pretty much all of them. Anyway, so um, the advertisements, if you, if you can pick these up for a couple dollars in antique stores, and sometimes it's fun to do that. Like, go find one from the year you were born. Um, I found one from the year I, bo I was born, and the articles were interesting. It was, I mean, it was about history. You, you get a snapshot of what our culture was like back then. But what's really entertaining is to read the advertisements from back then. And so I was looking at the one from the year that I was born, which I'm not telling you. Anyway, but... Um, um, it's not a secret, but I'm not going to tell you. It's just, just not going to do it. Anyway, so um, um, there's this advertisement, and it's, it's got this woman with this baby in her arms, and she's smiling, and the baby's got kind of a puzzled look, and, um, and it's talking about how to keep your baby healthy if it won't take its formula. Okay, back then, formula was the deal a lot more, and, um, and here was the recommendation, just mix the formula 50-50 with 7-Up, <laughs> and your baby will have all of the energy it needs. <laughs> I want to thank you for putting 7-Up in my formula, Mom. <laughs> She's going, not me, I didn't do it. Anyway, but that was the culture back then. 7-Up, might as well be Coke, you know? Maybe Jolt Cola, put that in their babies there, you know? And, um, but it, there are all kinds of magazines still today with the word life in the title. Here's just a few. Man's Life, Women's Life, Palm Springs Life, Girl's Life, Boy's Life, Best Life, Movie Life, Child Life, Outdoor Life, Trailer Life, Wild Life, High Life, <laughs> Family Life, 
dog's life, cat's life, the good life. There's even one called the intelligent life for people that need to not be so stupid, I guess. I don't know, but, but the intelligent life. But you're probably not going to find a magazine called Death Life or Death Magazine or Dying Today. or Dead. You're just not going to find that people won't pay for it. It's like they're all about living. They're all about life. They're all about, you know, what goes on here, here on the earth. But we all know, don't we? We all know that death is a part of life. And rarely, though, do we want to make a magazine or read about it. And our life here is kind of precarious. Even when we eat right and when we take our vitamins and we count calories and we pump iron and we walk and we run and we do all those things, eventually we still lose that battle and death overtakes us. There's a Washington, D.C. undertaker who, um, when he signs his correspondence, his letters, instead of signing truly yours or cordially yours, he's known for signing eventually yours. <laughs> kind of reminding people about the business. Now, in my business, I've done plenty of funerals in my 33 or 34 years as a patch. I've done a lot. I've got, I can tell you stories sometimes. And, and, um, but I've done the funerals for young people, and I've done them for younger people, and middle-aged people, and old people, and older people, and believers, and non-believers. And um, I've watched people die, including my father and uh, a few other people at different times. And I've watched people working through the change, this transition. And I've, and I've watched families dealing with the, the change. I've watched families dealing with it full of faith and peace. And I've seen families with despair. The very first funeral I ever did, I watched at the just at the end of the funeral, I watched family members break into a, an absolute fist fight. I mean, I've seen stuff. And, um, you, you know, people just, just it's just uh, all over the map. And I, after all of this, I've kind of formed a personal conclusion. And this is just personal. This is not scripture. This is just Terry's opinions and feelings. But it's this. I just want to live my life in such a way that when I die, two things... I'd like to be missed because of, not because I'm such a swell guy, but I'd like to be missed because I decided to intentionally somehow seed qualities and character as best I could in my life. So there would be, so I'd like, I'd like that to happen. And the other thing is I, 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 want, I want to go without any regrets, without, without any, any longings that I didn't do what I needed to do to be prepared for my future. Because there's a future. And that future is a way bigger deal than the Tour de France or whatever else it is that has got us focused. Most of you are not into the Tour de France, so I'm sorry for using a terrible example. But you should be. It's a great sport to watch. Anyway, so, I mean, I've formed this conclusion. There's, a, there's this parable about these three guys who um, died in an auto accident altogether, and they were... Um, immediately asked this question, and, and so the question was, okay, during your funeral, when your friends and loved ones are there, and they're reminiscing about you, what is the one thing you want to hear them say about you at your funeral? And the first guy says, well, I want them to say, I, I, was, a, I, was, a, I, was, a, 
a wonderful, a wonderful family man and a good doctor. Second guy says, well, I, I want them to say I was, a, I was a really good teacher. I cared for children, and I really helped them, and I loved my wife. And the third guy thought about it for a minute, and he said, he said I want them to say, look, he's moving. <laughs> That's cute. But the third guy, I think, lived with regrets. I, think he, he, I don't think he was ready. He, I think he had some, maybe some ignorance about death, and, and he lived without some insurance. And those, some, some assurance, those are the two things that uh, we're going to look at today when we get into our text. We're going to talk about ignorance concerning death, and we're going to talk about the assurance that believers have concerning death. So our text today is going to be in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, starting in verse 13. But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. Verse 15, for this is the way, for this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself would descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Now this passage is very commonly taught, and uh, it is the, um, the passage that talks about that moment. We call the rapture when... Uh, when the Lord returns, and uh, that's not, the, uh, that's not the, the, the direction that the teaching is going to go today, but there are some things here that we can learn about after we die from this passage. And um, so these, this passage is going to occupy us for the next couple of weeks, and, um, and there's two primary themes here. One is our ignorance concerning death, and then the second one is the assurance that believer has. And, um, and I think this section of passage is, this passage is going to answer a lot of the questions that we have. I think we have a lot of questions. Okay, here are some of the questions that I just jotted down about death, and maybe you have more or maybe different ones, but what happens at the moment of death? What happens? When we die, are we unconscious, or are we in some kind of soul sleep? Do we, you know, since Paul says those who sleep in Christ, does that mean that we're unconscious? Another question is, when is the resurrection going to take place? Here's one. Is it proper to grieve at a Christian's funeral? A believer who dies. Because since Jesus, you know, triumphed over death by resurrection, you know, it's like, and he, and he promises us that same kind of triumph over death, you know, whoever believes in me will never die, he said in, uh, in John chapter, so, so, so is it okay, do we grieve? And if that's the case, since Jesus promised victory over death, why do Christians still die? That's a fair game. There's, questions are fair game, right? Okay, here's another one. When, when will death eventually be done with? Okay, so the context for this passage, um, let's get, in, in, get the context here. Paul is on his second missionary journey, and he stops in this little town called Thessalonica. And for three successive weekends, three weekends in a row on Sabbath, he's in the synagogue, and he's, he's preaching the gospel. He's telling people about Jesus. And um, there are people who come to faith. They come to know Christ. And um, then because of this going on, as you know, where, where Jesus went and where his disciples went, it turned over the apple carts, so to speak, of the established religion. So there's an uproar. In fact, there's quite an uproar, um, and uh, he, Paul, ends up having to get out of town to save his life. And um, 
but there's this body of believers that gets established in Thessalonica, and um, these people are saved, and, and they're saved in the context of this Greco-Roman culture. And, and Paul has been telling these new believers that Jesus is going to return. He's coming back, so you should be ready for him. Be ready for him because he's coming back. He could come at any moment. But now some time has passed. And during that time, some of these believers' friends have died. Maybe they're relatives or family members. There have been some people dying. So now, the, now these people are worried. And Paul hears about the fact that they're worried. You know, they're, they're thinking, well, if Jesus is going to come back and, and start his kingdom, but my, but, my, but my husband died, does he miss out? What happens with that? I mean, what about the friends and relatives? Do they just, are they out? What's the deal? So he's writing this to address that. So consider this, consider the, 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 their ignorance of death. And we'll look back again at verse 13. But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. Now, notice first off how widespread this ignorance of death is. He's writing to Christians, and he says, I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren. Brethren are Christian believers. Okay, he's, he's, he, there's, a, there's a level of ignorance about death among these believers, and that level of ignorance hasn't stopped from this time to today even. It continues. Non-Christians and Christians are uninformed or misinformed when it comes to death and dying. And... Um, I mean, sometimes that happens because of cute things. We can be kind of cute. You know, I've, uh, the story of a, of a five-year-old or a four-year-old, a little boy who had found a dead bird and, of course, you know, asked mom about what's, the, what's going on. And mom says, well, that bird's in heaven. And, and the obvious thing that a little child looks at and says, well, then why did God throw it back, right? <laughs> the things that we pick up on that help us become more ignorant, it's cute. And, and sometimes we don't do a real great job of explaining um, but what do you tell a four-year-old? You tell them just enough to satisfy them because you can't get into this whole... I mean, you know, that's, one of the, that's a parenting trick, by the way. When your children ask you something, you don't have to go into the whole birds and bees. You just tell them enough to satisfy their question. And as they get older and they ask more questions, you can explain more details. Do you follow me? So something, there, something here about parenting. So these people in Thessalonica are surrounded in their culture. Um, uh, they're surrounded and they have this ignorance. And, and they're in the culture of the Greeks and the Romans. So I think it'll help us to understand a little bit about what the Greeks and the Romans believed about death because that's the context that these Thessalonians are in. Okay, It'll help us see a little bit about ourselves and see how important this statement is in verse 13. So the Greek culture um, concerning death, it's, you know probably it's filled with mythology and they had several deities that they believed existed and one of the lesser deities was a guy we talked about last, last time. His name was Thanatos. Thanatos, which is, he's the personification of death. Now, Thanatos was the offspring of two other gods, uh, Nyx and Erebos, who, whose names mean night and darkness, okay? And he also had a twin brother named Hypnos, which means sleep, okay? There's, this is a family of darkness. There's bad stuff going on. And the thing about Thanatos was he despised human beings, and human beings despised Thanatos, Sound good so far. I mean, this is this guy's personification of death. And here's the thing. Is he could also occasionally be outwitted. There are some stories in their culture of a few people that cheated Thanatos or cheated death. Of course, they could only do that for a while, right? Nobody can do it for very long. In Roman culture, which was also intermixed here, 
they had just as much ignorance as the Greek. Um, and in, in fact, if you go to Rome today, you can still go down to the catacombs, and there are a lot, there's miles of catacombs, and there are tombstones, and you can read the tombstones, and people put statements on their tombstones. Here's a couple. I was not, now this is all from one, I was not, I became, I am not, I care not. Here's another one. Live for the present hour since there is nothing else. Now, when a Roman citizen died, if the family could do it, when they laid them out and prepared for them, they would place a gold coin underneath their tongue. Okay? And the reason for that was so that when they pass on, when they went into the afterlife, they were able to pay the fare to a, a deity, deity called Charon, Charon, who would be, was a ferryman, and, and Charon would carry their soul across the river Styx to where, the, where that person would then face three judges, three being a number required to come up with a decision. There would always be some impartiality there. And that, they, th- those three judges would then ask the person to give an account for their life, and depending on what the outcome of that decision was, would determine where they would go. And there was basically three areas that they would go to. If they were a warrior or a hero, they would go to a place called the Fields of Elysia. A Fields of Elysia. If, if, in fact, if you remember the movie Gladiator um, and... Um, Russell Crowe, maybe you don't watch movies, but Russell Crowe talks about going to, and he has these dream sequences where he's floating, the fields of Elysia. That's where heroes and warriors go. It's the best. If you were just a regular, ordinary person, and your good stuff kind of came into balance with your bad stuff, you would go to a different place. They would have another place for you. And if you perturbed the gods, they would send you to a place called Tartarus, and Tartarus was a bad place. You would either get dipped in lava or stretched on the rack or whatever, torment. It was terrible. So that was their thinking. Now, knowing this is what the people in Thessalonica were thinking happens to you after your diet, it's one or the other. You got to deal with Thanatos or these three judges after going across the river. And um, okay, knowing that, he says, I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. The Greco-Roman world, when it came to anything eternal, it was, it was empty, hopeless, just bankrupt. And these new believers, these young believers of Christ in Thessalonica are leaning into their culture to figure out what happens to their loved ones when they die. What's going to happen now? Are they going to cease to exist? And they have all these questions that are filling their minds. And their ignorance was very, very widespread. And that kind of ignorance even continues today. Even though we're sophisticated in our culture, it still continues today among believers and in the secular world. Now, you know a lot of the cultural beliefs already. You've already been exposed to them, but I'll just point them out to you. If you ask the average person on our street about about, um, death, heaven, hell, the afterlife, um, they're probably going to tell you things like, well... I don't know if they, they may not word it like this, but they'll say something like, well, all you have to do to go to heaven is just die. That's it. You know, all you have to do. I've been to funerals where um, the person had, you know, they lived their whole life with absolutely no care or concern or, con- or attention to- towards God or anything about eternity. And then suddenly some preacher will stand up and say, oh, he's such a great guy, and he's in heaven today. And you'll hear that statement made. 
And so apparently all you have to do to get to heaven is die. That's one, one belief out there. Or people will say, well, if you're good enough, you get to heaven. Because good people go to heaven. Of course, that leads to the next question. Well, what does good enough mean? And usually in that person's mind, mind, it's something less than me. Because I make it. I would let me into heaven if I was the measuring. So, I mean, that's, that's typically you have to be good enough. Or, or everybody goes to heaven. You, you never hear anybody stand up at a funeral and say, well, he's in tough shape. You, you don't hear that. It would be terrible. It would be, you know, today we know Uncle Legion is not in heaven, you know, like nobody's going to do that. You'd never, that's just disturbing. And yet Jesus did teach that proportionately very few people go to heaven, relatively speaking, right? Okay. Matthew 7. These are the words of Jesus. Catch not, he doesn't give a number here. He gives a proportion. Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it. Because narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way which leads to life. And there are few who find it. I think most of you have found it. I hope you have. If you haven't, find it. Find the narrow gate because it's a lot longer after than it is before. So what do people think? Well, um, people think um, the materialist, the person who's a materialist, believes in, in, we'll call it extinction. You live, you die, then there's nothing. There's no hope to look forward to. There's no afterlife. There's nothing at all. And um, in, in other words, make the best of today because this is it you know, after this you cease to exist, there's, you're completely unconscious. Now, this belief has grown significantly, I would say, in the last 50 years. And um, I, I can just tell you, every once in a while, a song will come on on the radio, or you'll hear it aligned with some sort of a cause. And I can't help myself but to start singing along with it. And the lyrics go like this. Imagine there's no heaven... It's easy if you try. No hell below us, above only sky. <laughs> I have to apologize to the Lord for the times I've caught that and started singing along with it. It's so catchy. The lyrics go on to promote a concept of having a, a, a belief system that doesn't have anything to do with God. And the chorus comes back and says, you may say that I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I hope someday you'll join us and the earth will be as one. Do you catch how, how, how... Ask yourself the question, who wrote the song? I know the paper says John Lennon wrote the song. But what inspired the song? It wasn't a heavenly inspired song. And I just regret every time it comes on, I'll catch you tune. I just want to sing with it. And that's the strategies of hell for us sometimes. They, they plant this wonderful, attractive thing. And if you without really thinking it through. I didn't ever think anything through spiritually. Oh, this is evil, Terry. Don't sing that. I said, oh, catchy tune. I like it. I like the idea. Can't we all just get along? <laughs> Does that bother you when I do that kind of stuff? <laughs> you know? <laughs> Stevie Wonder? <laughs> Honey, get my sunglasses. <laughs> Ebony and I. Okay. <laughs> Completely lost it. Okay, all right. Sorry, I lost my mind. I've got it back now. Okay. 
But the thing is that it's just this catchy tune and you just, you, you don't think it through. But you sing those words and they go down into your soul. And it's a, strat- it's a strategy. When I think about what music impact had on me growing up and my children, um, it's a battle. Okay, and the materialists, that's what the materialists believe, and the number of materialists is growing, and I think it's because of things like this. We, be, we, we absorb them into our culture. Um, another, another, uh, another group of people would be more along the lines of, let's say, New Age, and they will teach something I would call absorption. Um, we're all a part of this divine cosmic mind. Some would call it the, the Christ mind, and over time, we're all just going to become... Um, we're all going to unite back into this united mind. I don't know what that means. It doesn't make sense to me, so I'm just going to dismiss it. Okay. In other parts of the world, you'll find people with a more animistic belief. They, they believe that when you die, your soul um, stays on the earth, and somehow it um, goes to the underworld where it emerges with the souls of your ancestors, and you wander forever, for, for eternally wander with your... Okay, that doesn't sound so, that good. Ha- Hindus believe... Pretty much all of the Hindus believe in reincarnation. They say the soul is recycled time after time after time. These things are factoring more than you think in our culture. Um, you know, I, I chuckle about that one. I don't want to make fun of another religion, but it makes no sense to me. Um, but um, that movie, um, um, Bucket List, Jack Nicholson makes a joke about reincarnation. He says, you know, well, what's a snail got to do to move up in the order like leave a really straight line of slime? Or what do you do if you're a snail, if you want to move up? I don't know. <laughs> Look at you laughing at other people's religion. Okay. But I think uh, another form of, of ignorance, and I want to be careful about this because I'm not suggesting there's anything terrible or bad about these experiences, but, the, but another source of information that creates some ignorance for us in our culture, mostly over the last few decades, would be what we would call near-death experiences. And I suppose it's possible people here have had those, or you know someone who's had those. And um, I don't know what to make of them. I think they're very possibly legitimate, and I think some of them are legitimate experiences that are not what they appear, and you'll see why, I think, in a minute. Um, But um, apparently, as doctors have kind of studied this, I think they should study it more. Um, The numbers of these kinds of experiences are coming down Probably, doctors say, because more often in our culture now, people are more sedated when they are passing than they used to be. I don't know if that's true or not, but there are a lot of books on the subject. One of the primary books on the subject was written by a guy named uh, Raymond Moody. He was an MD. He's the guy who coined the term near-death experience. And he studied um, 100 or 150 cases of people, scientifically interviewed them and kept statistics and did did an analysis of of all these people who experienced clinical death. Now, for them, clinical death was people who were pronounced clinically dead in a medical setting. And some of these people even heard the pronouncement of their death. They had a, a common, it was common for them to have sensed being outside their body, maybe observing or, or seeing those moments, and, um, and, uh, and then they were, they were revived. So they experienced it revived. But in that time frame, they talked about meeting friends. They talked about meeting relatives. They, some, many of them even talked about a great light, a being of great light who accepted them. No matter what they had been or what, where, who they were, no matter what, there was this acceptance. Now, I'm, 
I cringe a little bit with that report, or I'm, let me not say cringe, I'm cautious, I'm very cautious, because I believe it could be the Lord. But I also believe it could not be the Lord, because 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen tells us that Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. And as an enemy of our souls, um, you know, he would love people to live life in a very nonchalant, cavalier way without giving any attention at all to eternity. And here's the thing. About 50% um, of the people told, of, I'm going to read this passage out of the book, and I want you to buckle up. Okay, this is not fun to hear. But about 50% of the people he surveyed, here's what he says. They went to a place of great darkness, not light, filled with grotesque moaning and writhing bodies, crying out to be rescued with an overwhelming sense of eerie, nightmarish terror. So then he goes on, and this, this guy who writes his book goes on, and he says, why aren't people writing books about those experiences? About, why aren't those stories published? Like all the ones that are published about people who see the light and so forth. He says, here's, he answers that question, this is his opinion, because people are too embarrassed to admit them, and doctors are too embarrassed to make inquiries into such matters. But nobody can afford to ignore the reports of these patients. I'm convinced that there is a hell and that we must conduct ourselves in such a way as to avoid being sent there at all costs. Great words. Avoid going to hell at all costs. So Paul writes to dispel ignorance here. The ignorance of the Thessalonian, Thessalonian believers was, you know, was mostly formed by what the world around them was telling them concerning death and the afterlife. And just, just like today, so much of what people buy into is informed by the books that are written and what popular psychologists and, and culture tells them instead of what the Bible says. So the second thing I want you to notice in uh, verse 13 is that this ignorance is concerning their loved ones who had died. Okay, verse 13. But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep. Now, he's referring to Christians who had died using the term fallen asleep. And he uses it three times in this passage. Verse 14. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring him, bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. Part, time out for a minute. Let me take a rabbit trail on the, on the rapture topic. If this idea that dead people will rise and the living people are going to fly in the clouds and we're going to meet Jesus, if that looks too, sounds too fantastic to you, too miraculous to believe, let me ask you this. If, because Jesus is coming back, how would he do it any other way? Does he wait until the last believer is actually in the grave? Because any other way, there will be some who alive that will alive and remain will have to come too without having gone through the grave. Do you follow me? So this is, it makes perfect sense. And frankly, if he can resurrect and God will resurrect millions of people out of the grave, making me fly is, that's the easy part. Yeah. <laughs> So, and, and, and as you read this passage, if you, if you have a study Bible, you know, many will have notes in the margins, um, it, it, it probably every time it says the word sleep or asleep, there's probably a note that says dead or have died. So it's, that's what it's saying. The, the reason that we know that it means dead and not taking a nap 
is, uh, just keep reading verse 16. For the Lord himself would descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead, there it is, in Christ will rise first. So those who are asleep are just, she's talking about simply saying Christians who have died. So why? Why is Paul using that term? Because doesn't sleep kind of infer that you're, you know, unconscious, you're dormant, you're like in a state of stasis or, you know, it doesn't infer that you're not going to know what's going on until the resurrection. The answer to that is no. This is a biblical description. It is found elsewhere in many places in scripture. This term sleep is used and um, it's used in part because of the appearance of the body. The body's still and a, a, a person who's asleep has this physical appearance of being still. And the word sleep here, this Greek word koimao, you and I use this word today in the same way, in the same sense of meaning, meaning death, but we say the word koimao, which is sleep. There's a, the, the word koimao, uh, another word from that same root, koimaterion, koimaterion, we use the word cemetery. It comes from Quimeterion, and it literally means sleeping place. When you say cemetery, you've actually said sleeping place. So that's what Jesus has in mind when he speaks about death and the coming resurrection. So listen to what he says in John chapter 11 when he's talking about his friend Lazarus. He's talking about his friend. Now, this, is, this is Jesus' friend Lazarus. And he says to them, our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I may wake him up. How's, if you know the story, you know how Jesus is going to wake him up. He's going to resurrect him. He, Lazarus has physically died, and Jesus is headed to physically resurrect him. I'm going to wake him up. It's a description. Verse 12, then his disciples said, Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get well. <laughs> it went right over their heads. They didn't follow. He was talking about death. However, however, verse 13, however, Jesus spoke of his death, but they thought that he was speaking about taking a rest in sleep. Then Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. It's the same description that we also see in Acts chapter 7. Stephen, uh, Stephen dies, and the New Testament author Luke, um, he says, he fell asleep. This is the way he describes it. It's in the New Testament. It's all over in the Old Testament when a person dies. Um, in the Old Testament, you can see lots and lots of examples where after a king has died, the scriptures say that he slept with his fathers. Okay, he's referencing he's now dead too, just like his fathers were. Psalm 13, um, enlighten my eyes, Lord, lest I sleep. The sl uh, sleep, the sleep of death. I mean, there's, it's used as a reference. Christians use the term sleep, you know, not be just because of the appearance, but because it's temporary. Our death is temporary. You take a nap, you wake up. Waking up is representative of the resurrection. Daniel 12, 2. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. When you're a child, when you're a little one, I've got some grandchildren now, they're camping, and um, they, do you remember how hard it was when your parents made you go to bed in the summertime? Daylight savings came, and it's still light. How am I supposed to go to bed? Okay, I forgive you. Okay, so, I mean, and kids don't want to go to bed. They don't want to go to sleep. The afternoon nap, they don't want to go to sleep. It's like it's a punishment. That changes when you get older, though, doesn't it? <laughs> like a nap. It sounds so good. <laughs> the reason we're not worried about taking a nap or going to sleep at night is because we know we're going to wake up, right? We know we're going to wake up. 
It's like the resurrection of the body. Luke chapter 16 has this really interesting story that's going to help us today and in the weeks ahead to get a handle on this. Now, I want to mention, too, that this is a story that Jesus is telling. This is a story. This is not a parable. This is a real, actual account, okay? And uh, so you can ask the questions. We can talk about it later if you want to know how did Jesus know these facts, but I can help you with that later. But, but this is not a parable. Uh, many times when Jesus did tell parables, he said, this is a parable. Or he made some comparison between two things to make it obvious that it's a parable. In this case, it's a true story. He uses names. This is, this is a real occurrence. There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus. This is a different Lazarus than the one he raised from the dead, okay? There was a certain beggar named Lazarus full of sores who was laid at his gate. So he's hanging out in front of the rich man's house, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. That's gross. There are entire sermon series on that sentence. And there are all kinds of ways to interpret that and to allegorize it and so forth. Um, I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, except my observation from this is the dogs took better care of Lazarus than the rich man. Verse 22, so it was that the beggar died and, carried, and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. That's paradise. The rich man also died and was buried, and being in torment in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. I'll take even just a drop will help. Cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, Remember that in your lifetime you received your good things and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted and you are tormented. And besides all this, between us and you there is a great gulf fixed so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. Then he said, I beg you therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers that he may testify to them lest they also come to this place of torment. Abraham said to him, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, we can insert, or the word of God, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. I, you know, Easter, Easter comes every year and we make a declaration about Christ rising from the dead and how many people are still unpersuaded. We could spend weeks on this story, but here are the things that I want you to notice about this. It's pretty obvious that after a person dies, they are fully conscious, fully aware. They're not in some kind of soul sleep. If you look at what's going on in the story, he can feel, he's got emotions. He's very, very conscious. He can feel pain as well as comfort. And, and notice that this guy is also alarmed by his situation. You know, he's, he's in Hades, and, um, 
And he wants to get word back to his brothers who he cares about. And notice in verse 25, and, and we can't just pass by this, verse 28 says, For I have five brothers that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. He's taking it so seriously now. Hell is clearly not what you will hear occasionally in our culture. Some people say, well, you know, yeah, I'm going to hell, but hey, I'll see you there at the big party. It's not going to be like that. And this guy's really alarmed. He doesn't want anybody to follow him there. So what do we know happens when a person dies? I want to narrow that to when a Christian dies. What do we know about when a Christian dies? One, you'll be very, very conscious, and you're going to be comforted. You're going to feel really good. If you're in pain now, if you're suffering from a bad back or a chronic disease of some sort or you know, you're in some terrible situation, you're going to be conscious, but you're also going to be comforted. Number two, here's what else we know. You will be immediately in God's presence. Immediately. 2 Corinthians 5, 8 says, We are confident, yes, well pleased. Rather, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Paul writes in a letter to the Philippians, he said, For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. It's gain. I could go into that, and I want to take time on that. And Jesus, Jesus also made that promise. Whoever, we heard it from one of our little ones today. Whoever believes in me will never die. John 11. Jesus promises the, us that we, that we will experience consciousness and, and blessing and comfort and, and the presence of the Lord. So you're going to be conscious, and you'll be immediately in God's presence. And the third thing that happens is that, catch this, this is crazy. It's wonderful. Immediately upon death, your soul is perfected in holiness. Your old sin nature is going to be eradicated. <laughs> Thank you for that. I mean, this, this, I hope this is really good news to you because it means that the fight is over. It's over, you know, completely over. There's no more struggle anymore with flesh and blood and with temptation. It's done. You find this in Hebrews uh, 12, 23. The spirits, it mentions the spirits of the redeemed in heaven now made perfect. In, in this glorified state at this point, when the fight's over. So what are we going to be doing? We, I mean us. I'm going. I hope you are too. What are we going to do, in, do in, you know, in, in, on this other side? Well, that's my teaser. We're going to get into that next time. But the third thing I want you to notice in this is that this, the, in, 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 back in First Thessalonians 4, is that this, this ignorance, whether it's by the Thessalonians or the Americans, it will produce hopelessness. Look at verse 13. I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. He doesn't stop at lest you sorrow. He believes we're going to sorrow. Everybody sorrows, right? We do. He modifies it. Lest you sorrow like those who have no hope. Ignorance about death and the afterlife, you know, like these Thessalonians had about their loved ones, will end up in this hopeless kind of grief. One man, I read about a man in Louisiana who was explaining why he would not buy life insurance. And he said, you know, he says, when I die, I want everybody to be sad. <laughs> you need to know, honey, I don't believe that way. So, <laughs> But that's the situation we're talking about here. People who have no hope. For materialists, for a lot of other people, death is a hopeless end. For the Christian, death is an endless hope. 
For the Christian, it's the, it's the beginning of this whole new, uh, a new phase of existence, the beginning of something much, much, much more wonderful. And Paul here is not saying that Christians don't grieve. He's just saying that our grieving is different. It's different. Hopeless people grieve and people with hope grieve. We all grieve. But we grieve differently than people who are hopeless. When a believer dies, you know, it's great for the believer. You know, they're, they're, they're great. It's great for them. It's just not great for us. You know, it's, it's gain for the person in heaven. It's a loss for the people who are still here slugging it out. You know, we're without the friendship or without the, the love of that person. And the Bible is filled with people who grieved. Here's a quick, couple of quick examples. Jacob, when he thought that his son Joseph was torn up by a wild beast, Scripture says that he mourned for many days. David, when he heard that his son Absalom, who needed to be, you know, he, he was a bad guy, but when he heard that Absalom was killed, he said, oh, my son Absalom, if only I could have died in your place. Grieving. Jesus, even Jesus, before he resurrected his friend Lazarus, Scripture says he wept. Christians grieve. It's just our grief is different. It's because it's filled with hope. And hope here, this word hope in the scripture, um, you can write this one in, your, in the margin or Bible if you've got your pen. Write the words confident expectation. This, this, this word hope, um, it's elpis, E-L-P-I-S is the, is the Greek word. It's, it's pronounced elpis, elpis, okay? It means, it's this anticipation with pleasure, okay? Anticipation, it's like anticipation Confident and expectation. So we are assured of resurrection. We, we are assured of restoration, and we're re, we are assured of, of a reunion. All of the things that Paul is teaching about in the next several verses, and that's why he closes this little snippet, this little section with this in verse 18. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Next time, we meet, we're going to talk about the assurance part of this text. And so back to those three guys, you know, how would you like to be remembered at your funeral? Um, and it's not, hey, he's moving. That's not really what I want and I expect to have happen at my funeral if there is one. Um, I, I expect the sentiment to be, you know, he's really living now because that's really what it'll be. Let's pray. God, today... We want to cast our hope upon you, upon you, Lord. And this is not about us doing and becoming and resolving and a list of works and acts, but instead, God, this is about us placing our hope in the very creator of life, the one who puts breath into our frame every passing second. We forget that so quickly, that if you stopped causing us to breathe, we would be gone in a moment. Thank you for the breath of life. Let there be breath of hope down in my soul. And God, I pray, God, that your spirit would call people right now. Just call them, Lord. Call those who don't know you into the fold and call the wounded and the hurting, Lord, to a place of hope and life and peace. You made promises that you would not quench a little smoldering flax, Lord, that there there's just needs to be a heaven's gentle touch or sometimes, Lord, we need heaven's gentle girding and sometimes we need heaven to, to yoke with us and to lift the burden off of our frame. Lord, be what you know each of us, your children, needs to be today, we pray. And Lord, we invite you to be our great hope. In the name of Jesus.